0: And let me add my welcome to uh, Joram's, if you haven't met. My name is Mitch Spence, and I'm one of the elders here at Living Hope Church. And it is great to have you with us this afternoon. We're continuing our series in Daniel, and we're stepping into a part of Daniel that not many of us uh, know very well. We've ended the biography section of Daniel, all the favorite stories that we uh, know as kids growing up, and we head into some rather tricky uh, parts and prophecies that come up in uh, Daniel. And yet no less encouraging and strengthening, I don't think. Our uh, talk today is is titled, A Ram, a Goat, and a Little Horn, which (laughs) is fairly um, cryptic in and of itself. Uh, But let's read this passage uh, that's before us. Uh, It's in Daniel chapter 8, if you have a Bible, and we'll continue from uh, verse 15, then we'll pray, and then let me uh, preach this sermon to us. Daniel chapter 8 and verse uh, 15. Hopefully you will come up for me as well. Um, Here we go. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the King of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome, and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and did not understand it." This is the word of the Lord. Let me uh, pray for us as we begin this afternoon. Our Father in heaven, we do not presume to come to you on our own terms, by our own merit but in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by his blood. Father, we pray and ask that in him and through him and by him, we might come to know you more, to come to know more of your plans in this world, more of your power, more of your um, great realities. Father, we pray that happens as we come to your word, that your Spirit is at work in us, revealing to us the truth of who you are. And so we ask that that is happening today, even in a passage which is uh, maybe hard to understand, uh, lots of uh, imagery and um, uh, pictures. But Father, we pray that we are strengthened by this word today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Four more years, boys. Four more years. If you're into sports and rugby in particular, then you'll recognize these cruel and heartless words from the mouth of a diminutive and rather lippy little Australian. It was, of course, the 2003 Rugby World Cup. And once again, Australia had just ended New Zealand's hopes of glory. And before the final whistle was even blown, one little diminutive, rather lippy little Australian turned to the opposition and said, four more years, boys. Four more years. George Gregan stuck the knife into the, the heart of a nation, and worst of all, he smiled while he was doing it. I happened to be studying in New Zealand at the time, and those words in that reality of losing another semi-final, of having to live another four years under the shadow of a smug Australian superiority, well, that sent an entire nation into depression and despair. Even the economy took a downturn as a result of that loss. Four more years, boys. And we Zimbabweans, we can identify with something of this heavy feeling, can't we? After all, it's only a couple of weeks ago now that we suffered our own loss in the sporting arena. That means that it is four more years before our beloved Chevrons get another crack at the World Cup. And to make matters even more painful, it comes on the back of a snap loss, doesn't it? Four years ago. Even now, some of us think that it's a little bit too soon to be talking about. I mean, Terry has only just surfaced from his flat for the first time this week. (laughs) He blames the flu, but I'm not so sure. Now, Daniel, of course, has no knowledge of cricket or rugby, and I'm pretty sure Daniel 8 was not given to us by God to help us all cope with the the despair of missing out on ICC qualification. However, Daniel 8 is an incredibly encouraging chapter for all those of us faced with the utter despair of contemplating a future full of turmoil and tyranny. You see, the reality that Daniel is faced with in this vision, and the question I think we all need to ask ourselves this afternoon is, Where do you turn when faced with and even overcome by the forces of evil in this world? Where do you turn? If on the 24th of August this year, the Chronicle runs a headline in extra-large, extra-bold font that simply reads, Four more years, boys. Where do you turn in that moment? What will you do? Who will you run to? And what if it's not just four more years, what if it's 40 more years of tyranny and turmoil? Or worse still, what if it's 400 more years of evil and wickedness prospering in our land? What do you do? Where do you turn when faced with and even overcome by the forces of evil in this world? And this is not a philosophical, philosophical question for us Zimbabweans, is it? We bear the scars of a people ravaged and abused by evil and brutal men who will stop at nothing to maintain the status quo. We watch on, don't we, as the forces of evil that govern our land continue to take from the poor, continue to take from all of us. and a weighs heavy on us. We can't, we can't hide from that. But it's not just out there, is it? This is a lived reality that we face each and every day. You don't need to live in Zimbabwe very long to be faced with that that moral dilemma that we all know too well pay the very small bribe and that piece of paper that is legitimately rightfully legally yours will appear in a matter of moments choose not to pay that bribe and well (laughs) just take a seat in the corner maybe clear your diary for the entire day maybe maybe two days this last week we had 72 hours with no in our uh, home of the three coldest days of the year. Our maid, Mama Nomsa, she's had no the entire week. Meanwhile, our leaders are paying Floyd Mayweather Jr. 1 million US dollars just to set foot in our nation wearing a very particular scarf. 1 million US dollars to show up wearing a scarf. Where do you turn? when you are faced with the constant pressure of evil, that constant pressure of being continually bombarded and harassed and oppressed by what can feel like a never-ending set of weighty decisions and heavy circumstances, which when we think about it, are being forced upon us, aren't they? By the forces of evil at the top. And it can become, and often is, incredibly overwhelming. What about the prospect of four more years, or 40 more years? or 400 more years? Where do you turn? See, often we Zimbabweans, I think we turn to the West, don't we? We think the grass is greener, and so we turn to the UK, Australia, the US, anywhere but here, really. And to some extent, I think that is understandable. But if you think that by doing so, you're going to somehow escape the forces of evil at work in this world, then you are sorely mistaken. At best, we're just trading one set of evil for another the aggressive secular agenda of the West, and the rapid moral decay of society, and yes, again, they're all filtering down from the top. We don't get to escape the forces of evil at play in this world by moving from one place to another. The question is, what do you do? Where do you turn when bombarded and harassed by the constant pressure to compromise or downplay your commitment to Christ and the Bible in order to succeed? Or in order just to be liked by the people around you and, and fit in, not thought of as a, a weirdo? Or or simply not to, to put a roadblock in your career progression paths? What do you do? Where do you turn when faced with evil in this world? What principles and promises do you cling to? Where do you go for guidance and comfort in that moment? Because here in our passage, in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel is confronted with a vision dominated by the forces of evil at play in the world for the next 400 years and it is overwhelming to him and yet I think there is in this passage a wonderful reality for all Christians everywhere that breeds boldness in the face of evil because our God is in control of history and he will break every, every force of evil now this vision is a little weird I get that a scene from Donnie Darko or something like that, some other horror film, but it's not actually all that complex to understand. On one level, Daniel tells us the vision, doesn't he, in verses 1 to 14, and then its interpretation in verses 15 to 27, a little bit like how how we kind of had the passage read to us. Uh, 1 to 14, the vision itself, and then 15 onwards, the interpretation. But then within this vision, it kind of focuses on, on three creatures, if you like. A ram, a goat, and a little horn. And so we're going to reflect on each of those in turn, and then try and bring it together uh, all at the end. So a ram, a goat, and a little horn, and then try and bring it together at the end. In verses um, 1 to 4, Daniel sees something, doesn't he, that he describes as a a ram. Although verse 3, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the the higher one came up last. Now, where we come from, we call this a rhinoceros. Two horns, one slightly bigger and one slightly smaller. I joke, of course. I take it that it genuinely did look like a ram, but a rather freaky and weird ram that had two horns. That's the vision. That's what Daniel saw, a ram. And then its interpretation will come with me to verse 20. So this is the second half of the passage. As for the ram that you saw with two two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So we're told explicitly that the ram with its two horns is the Persian Empire. And from extra-biblical sources, we even know that in the ancient world, Persia was often depicted as a ram. And this ram, this Persian Empire, will charge, wherever it wants, expanding its kingdom over all the earth. No kingdom and no people can stand in its way will do as it pleases, and it'll become the great superpower of the day, verse 4. Which I think is incredibly intriguing, and I think we should uh, too. Because here in chapter 8, Daniel is giving us a vision that he saw long before the events of chapter 5. It helps explain, doesn't it, the boldness that Daniel shows in chapter 5. As we've already uh, kind of said, this, this vision it predates the downfall of Belshazzar in chapter 5. And so when Daniel is summoned to the banqueting hall by by Belshazzar several years later, and he sees the writing on the wall, Daniel already knows that the uh, the Babylonian empire will be brought to an end by the Medes and Persians. And so in that moment, Daniel isn't shocked or surprised, because for him it was just a confirmation of what he already knew was coming. Daniel sees the vision in chapter 8 at the beginning of Belshazzar's reign. And God says, the next kingdom to come are the Medes and the Persians. And so when Belshazzar oversteps his authority, well then so Daniel just pronounces the judgment that was coming anyway. He gives the authoritative interpretation, doesn't he? The writing on the wall, and then he just pronounces the judgment against Belshazzar. You've been weighed, you've been found wanting, and the kingdom is stripped from you. And I think this should be a cause of great comfort and great boldness from you and from me in this day and age. Because just like Daniel, as we watch the humbling of Babylon by the Medes and Persians play out in history, then we know that our God is in control of the events in this world. Do you see how that works? It's this knowledge that breeds Daniel-like boldness. It's knowing that our God rules and reigns over human history that produces bravery. It's seeing the hand of God in the, in the humbling of, of Belshazzar and, and on the plane of human history that grows courage. It's recognizing God's sovereignty over the kings and kingdoms of the earth that breeds boldness in the face of evil. And Don't we need that in the world right now? Bold Christians, particularly when it comes to calling evil leaders to account? I recently heard a, a pastor define boldness this way. He says, boldness is clarity in the face of opposition. Not bravado, not brazenness, not brashness, but boldness as being clear in the face of opposition. And that kind of clarity, it begins with being clear that our God is in control of this world. As we continue into this vision, um, Daniel sees then a goat, doesn't he? Uh, verse, uh, verse five, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes." The second creature that Daniel sees in his vision is the arrival of a goat that looks a little bit like a unicorn and even appears to fly over the face of the earth. And Verse 21 tells us that this goat is the Greek empire, and the conspicuous horn is a clear reference to Alexander the Great, the first king of Greece. Alexander the Great was a general in the Greek army by the age of uh, by the age of 21 and who by the age of 26 had virtually conquered the whole world 26 years old having conquered the world And yet he would die a sudden and debaucherous death at the peak of his powers when he was only 33 years old Conqueror at 26 dead and forgotten by 33. But before he died, verses 6 and 7, they tell us that this goat will overwhelm the ram. Greece will conquer Persia. And just look at the details describing that disastrous defeat that Alexander would inflict on Persia. Verse 6, he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns and the ram had no power to stand before him but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power and according to one commentator nothing could more eloquently summarize the overwhelming defeat alexander visited upon the persian forces in the battle at the no, I have to say this right at the granicus river in 334 bc with only 35000 men Alexander's forces plunged through the river, attacking Darius's 100,000 footmen and 10,000 horsemen, reportedly killing 20,000 Persians at a loss of only 100 Greek troops. Outnumbered 3 to 1, and still Alexander tramples the Persians. Here's a fun fact for the day. The movie 300 is the retelling of a battle from this period of history, from the Greco-Persian wars. And so maybe it's a little bit less fictional and a little bit more factual than we first thought. But not long after his rise to power, Alexander dies, and the Greek empire splits in four, as Daniel's vision predicted. Daniel sees a vision of a Medo-Persian nation rising to conquer Babylon, and then one coming after them being the Greco Empire that then conquers the Persian Empire, hundreds of years in advance of it actually happening, and then it plays out in history like a textbook. This is meant to give us confidence that our God is in control of the forces of evil in this world. Nothing is outside of his control. And in Daniel's vision, the focus almost immediately shifts and then zooms in, doesn't it, on a little horn that will rise from within one of the now four Greek kingdoms which is a little bit strange if you consider where the weight of historical interest lies, because in terms of historical impact, the scope of his conquests, the renown of his name, this little hornet pales in significance to Alexander the Great. As far as history is concerned, that is the big talking point. And yet Alexander comes and goes in this account, and everything seems to center on and focus on this little horn. He's given all the airtime. And I think that's because because God views history very differently to us. See, in Daniel 8, we get God's take on what really matters in history. We get, if you like, history viewed from God's perspective. And what seems to matter most to God is how these kings and kingdoms treat his people. And so as we move into the third part of Daniel's vision, described in verses 9 through 14 and then the interpretation in verses 23 to 27, Daniel sees the rise of this little horn from within one of the four divisions of Alexander's Greek empire. Verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It was great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts, And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. This little horn represents someone known as Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of Syria that arose out of the Greek empire. And from this vision, it appears that this little horn is going to wreak havoc and bring destruction on the people of Israel. Verse 9, it turns its conquests toward the glorious land, toward the promised land. Verse 10, it throws some of the host of heaven down to the ground and tramples on them. Verse 11, his reign, under his reign, the regular burnt offering in the temple is brought to a disastrous halt, and the sanctuary itself is desecrated. Verse 14, this is going to last for some time. In other words, Daniel saw that this little horn would be hell-bent on reducing the people of God to nothing, that he blaspheme the name of the Lord as though he were God himself, and he would ensure that the daily sacrifices were brought to an end and the temple of God was, des- was desecrated. Is there any wonder why Antiochus Epiphanes gets so much airtime from God and his view of history? As one commentator highlights, Alexander proved to be a confused and evil man. But the little horn here is singled out because its evil is directed with demonic hatred against the people of God and all that they represent. Let me give you just a short description of the kind of things that Antiochus Epiphanes did to the Jews during his reign. He came to power in 175 BC, and he gave himself the name Theos, Antiochus Epiphanes, which translates, the illustrious god, Antiochus. He was power-hungry. He sought to expand his dominion to include the nation of Palestine, and that brought him into direct conflict with Egypt. He then invaded Egypt, and while he was in Egypt, a rumor circulated amongst the Jews that he had died. And so there are great celebrations back, back in Jerusalem. However, when he came back and he wasn't dead, he accused the people of rebellion, savagely attacked Jerusalem, and executed tens of thousands of Jews. 40,000 he killed in the space of three days. Others were taken captive. He entered the Holy of Holies in the temple, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the burnt offering. He defiled the temple precincts, he took the furniture, and he established a Jewish traitor as the high priest. In 168 BC, after he failed to take Egypt, he again vented his rage on the Jews. This time, more than 20,000 of his soldiers massacred the Jews who assembled to worship on the Sabbath day. The temple was left without sacrifices, religious practices were non-existent, a statue of Zeus was placed in the temple, and human sacrifices were made on the altar human sacrifices were made on the altar. This is the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, and why he plays such a central role here in Daniel chapter 8, why he plays such a central role in God's view of history. And so there you have it, Daniel's vision in chapter 8, a ram, a goat and a little horn. It's weird, I get that, but not too weird. Where God gives Daniel an interpretation, a snapshot, doesn't he, a preview of forthcoming attractions in the, the geopolitical stage of the world. But did you notice that God also gives him the interpretation? Daniel doesn't have to speculate here, and so nor do we. The goats, the ram, and the little horn will be the rise and fall of the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Syrian Kingdom under the heinous and evil rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. And as God gives Daniel a glimpse of the future political landscape, it's not all that rosy for the people of Israel, is it? They're already in exile in Babylon, and the view of the next 400 years is intense persecution. And it makes Daniel physically ill, doesn't it? Verse 27 And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel struggles to face the future and the forces of evil that will play out and wreak havoc in this world, particularly as they persecute the people of God. The big question is is why? Why does God give Daniel this preview of historical events that will have almost nothing to do with him? Daniel won't even make it through the Persian Empire. So, so so why show him what will happen in 100, 200, 400 years' time? Daniel will be dead and buried long before Alexander is even born. He will be dust blowing in the wind by the time that Antiochus knows how to spell his name. Why does Daniel need to know what is in store for the people of God for the next 400 years? And I think that the, the answer, the whole point is that God is radically expanding Daniel's horizons and showing him that there is a much, much, much bigger picture in play than he ever imagined before. Up until this point, all of Daniel's hopes and dreams, they were tied, they were bound up to, weren't they, with the restoration of the people of Israel, the return of Israel to the promised land. Daniel is looking forward to and longing for, isn't he, the old days of Solomon and David? Israel once again in the land, flourishing in the presence of God. Daniel is longing for the old days, for the days that are kind of so vividly captured under the rule of Solomon, where every man and woman sat under their own vine and fig tree, a picture of peace and security and prosperity. And though Daniel thought that that big picture of his life was the restoration of Israel to Jerusalem, God is showing Daniel that there is something far bigger, far greater that he is doing in the world. Sinclair Ferguson says that Daniel's vision will give him some understanding of the nature of evil and the reasons that it must be destroyed if the kingdom of God is to last forever. See, Daniel doesn't need to know the dates or the times, but God does want him to know. He does want us to know the scale and scope of the conflict between the forces of evil in this world and the forces of God at play. And that's the whole point of Daniel 8, and I think probably the whole point of the next few chapters as we continue into Daniel 9, 10, and 11. God is revealing to Daniel that the problem of evil in this world is far, far greater than he ever thought. God is revealing that our problem here in Zimbabwe is far, far greater than the forces of evil that rule and govern our land. So easy isn't it to become so biopic, to think that this is the big issue facing us Zimbabweans each and every day. And God says it's so much bigger than that. And yet, none of them fall outside of my control. All of them will answer to him. First, the Babylonian Empire, humbled by the hand of God. Then the Persian Empire will rise and fall. Then there's the Greek Empire. Then there's the fall of Antiochus and the Syrian Empire. Over and over, evil, no matter how brilliant, no matter how intelligent, no matter how powerful, is never outside of God's control. They all answer to him. Now, we all want, don't we, in our land? We want peace and prosperity and security, just like Daniel wanted in his day. But God is revealing that that day will never come unless all the forces of evil in this world are dealt with and done away with. So where do you turn when faced with and even overcome by the forces of evil in this world? If what we want in Zimbabwe is a new day, a new Zimbabwe, which we want, no one's denying that, we long for it, we pray for it. Some of us even work towards having a new day in Zimbabwe, new leaders, new leaders who honor God and serve their people. But if that is our ultimate hope, Daniel is saying it is too small a hope, and it will not last, because more evil will come. And so he's pushing our our, our view of history, our view of all that God is doing in the world to become bigger, far greater, far more powerful. We said in chapter 5, didn't we, We said in chapter 5 that in some sense for all rulers everywhere the writing is already on the wall. That as we see the death, resurrection and exaltation of Jesus that is as if God is is kind of etching into the fabric of, of history. For all rulers everywhere your time is up. You will answer to me and before you know it judgment will come. And I think that this is is meant to be incredibly encouraging to us. It's meant to be incredibly encouraging to all Christians everywhere. Consider this for a moment. Daniel receives a vision in the early parts of the reign of Belshazzar, about a future 400 years down the line. But not only that, he sees the end of Belshazzar's reign. And then a few years later, he sees the writing on the wall and the downfall of Belshazzar. And the rise of the Medo-Persian world." I think Daniel found comfort in he and boldness knowing what was coming, that when it came he was able to be clear in the face of evil. He was able to find that boldness, that bravery, that sense of courage that called Belshazzar to account. And we we not only look back to the rise of the Medo-Persian kingdom but we can look back to God's ordaining of the rise of the Greco world and then the rise of the syrian world the rise of the roman worlds and then all of them all of them within his control all of them submitting to christ the one who breaks the power of every ruler and every kingdom because he has already been raised and seated far above all rule all authority all dominion not only in this life but in the one to come And so we, in the face of evil today, wondering what is going on, where is God in the world, why is he not doing something, we get to look back on all of that and find courage in the face of evil, find boldness in the face of wicked men. Not only that, we get to look to Christ, don't we? Who's alive, who's reigning and ruling now and who will return one day who will return one day to judge the world. Let's pray. Let's pray this afternoon. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for this chapter in Daniel 8, which uh, is weird in terms of the visions that are seen, and yet is incredibly powerful and strengthening. As we see Daniel catch a glimpse of history far, far in advance of it ever happening, and then it plays out like a textbook. It plays out according to your exact vision of the world. Father, we thank and praise you that although the, the forces of evil seem great and powerful and clever and as if they will never end, Father, we praise you for how we see here through this period of history that they all answer to you. They all come within your power that you bring princes and kings to nothing. And Father, we pray that that breeds a boldness in us in the face of evil. Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his death, resurrection and exaltation is the one, is the King, who has been given all power, all authority, as we saw last week in Daniel chapter 7, and who is ruling and reigning now. And so we know that all kings answer to you. All presidents, all prime ministers, all rulers, or chiefs, they all answer to you. And so Father, help us to have a big view of what you are doing in the world. To know that our ultimate hope, the hope of rest and peace and security, lies not in this world, but in a world where all forces of, na- of evil are done away with. And to long for and look forward to that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.